Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Late Podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Although sometimes we do comics from the 1990s and 2000s that are set in the 1960s, like today. Uh, we're going to be reviewing the incredible, beautiful issue, uh, X-Men Origins Jean Grey number one by Sean McKeever with amazing art by Mike Mayhew. We'll get there in a little while, but God, it's pretty. Uh, I am thrilled first to welcome back my friend Derek Coonskin to the podcast and uh, two more friends that I made while I was at FlameCon, the incredible artists uh, from Rage Gear Studios. Uh, I'm going to have all of you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, whatever you'd like to talk about there is great. And uh, the question for today is what would you do if you were a telepath? Let's begin with uh, Eric. Hi guys, my name is Eric. Um, I live in New York City, and let's see, I use he/him pronouns. And you might know us as I'm um, one part of Rage Gear Studios, and we, you know, we hit up the convention circuit. So you might have seen us in a couple of shows we've done. Um, in terms of the question, <laughs> so uh, I. I think I would use my telepathic powers to the full power because uh, my thing is not knowing things gives me like anxiety. So just having to know what other people are thinking and always wondering that that would just be like, help me <laughs> just know what, you know, people are thinking and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's about it. Excellent. Excellent answer. Let's go to Ray next. Hey, Ray Arzano. New York City, he, him, and you could know my stuff from all over the place. There's like the X-Men Star Wars mashup that comes out every May May the 4th. There's the Rainbow X-Men Color Kids. There's the, what's the other one? The the beach scene, that Pride Marvel Beach, like that everybody's header goes on Facebook with uh, during Pride. And... uh, if I was a telepath, I, I, I don't want to be one. I think I'd wear some kind of a uh, foil. I'd be the one wearing the foil. because <laughs> I don't want to know what people are thinking. Because people, even just as an individual, you just know sometimes things cross your mind that you just, only for a second you think, and then you're like, no, 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 that's horrific. Let's not go there. I don't want to know those things. <laughs> there's, there's different, there, I, I might use more of like the suggestive part of it, but I wouldn't, in terms of reading people's minds, I don't want to know. I think, was it Whitney or RuPaul? I don't know who it is. What other people think of you is none of your business. I'll I'll stick to that. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about telepathy today, but it would be exhausting to be a telepath, I think. (laughs) And then, uh, and finally, my my good friend, Derek. How are you, Derek? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, So I'm Derek Krinskin. I'm in uh, Ottawa, Canada, and uh, people may know me as a science fiction writer, uh, I wrote The Quantum Magician and um, The House of Sticks. I write space opera um, and I go by he, him. And uh, yeah, telepathy seems like, like you know, everybody's always like, would you rather have telepathy or flight? And I'm always like, flight, flight. I don't want telepathy either. Um, but I have to say that, you know, I'm, I have a spouse now, everything's good. But I mean, there are many years of my life where my gigantic blind spot was I couldn't tell if like women were trying to like hit on me or something. And so they'd come up and like say something. And then I'd be like, oh, that's really great. And then I'd walk away and I have no clue what just happened. And I would only realize it maybe a week later. So telepathy might help for situations like that. <laughs> but 
even there, like just the ethical ickiness of it is like, yeah, I I, uh, I subscribe to what Ray just said. Like what people think of me, I really is really none of my business. Uh, and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him. Uh, you guys know me from this podcast, which is kind of what I say every time now. <laughs> I talk about myself all the time on this show. Uh, if I were a telepath, and we've had conversations around telepathy in some of our trial episodes for Xavier, Mastermind, Mesmero, et cetera. If I were a telepath, I think I would become a supervillain. I think I would have no choice. I would just read people's minds. I'd find their weak spots. I'd see what I could do. I'm a good and ethical person, but I think if I had that power set and I could get away with it, I probably would, but I would kind of hate it. I would want to shut it off and on whenever I could. Uh, I would definitely not want to read anyone's thoughts uh, if I didn't want to. And chances are, once I had, I'd wish I hadn't. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to spend some time today. No, listeners- It's a dark place. It really is. Uh, listeners, you can only hear audio, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know uh, Eric and Ray a little bit. We, we had a chance to talk at FlameCon uh, on multiple days in a row. I always felt bad because I wanted to keep talking to them because they're delightful. And there was always a line of people like, hey, move out of our way, Chad. We're trying to buy their stuff. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> uh, but they're they're on the same camera wearing matching shirts and are both so excited and nervous at the same time. It's like the cutest two-headed monster I've it. ever seen. All of it. Look at that. You don't have to be a telepath. I know. You just read the whole, just read the whole scene. Uh, so let's spend a little bit of time uh, getting to know uh, Eric and Ray first. Uh, I walked by your booth at FlameCon multiple times uh, as I was making my rounds with my husband, saw your gorgeous art, and then I noticed some of your book booklets sitting out. And you have gorgeous art and gorgeous pencils and gorgeous style, but you had some of the most obscure X-related characters being featured. For example, Gossamer, like on the cover of one I of I love Gossamer. Like, what? <laughs> She's so mean. And uh, it's just, it was entertaining. Uh, yeah, it was one of the, so I was introduced to the comics in elementary school. I'm, I'm talking like third or fourth grade. And that's kind of like when I started picking up on that and oh my gosh my my thing is rain rain is named rain for the tears like they, they just they figured this woman was gonna cry a lot so let's just give her a, like a wet name rain sinclair <laughs> wolf's pain yeah yeah and gossamer made her cry a whole lot and then she also made iliana cry it was just like but it was silly stuff like she was just like because the boys liked her or I, it was it was just so camp to me that she was entertaining and then but at the same time it was so temporary because she was going to go away and go into a cocoon and come out a big tree monster. But for now, she was this thing. <laughs> so unless I just spider, unless spider with a Y got her first. These are yeah. new mutant stories from the eighties. But, but, but she kept the big dolly hair. Yes. So <laughs> so she was always just fun to to look at and. I just never took Rain very seriously. So, <laughs> so uh, let's have Eric start with this question. Tell us a little bit about your journey as an X-Men fan and kind of nerd into uh, becoming a professional artist. Let me just kind of hear a little bit of your story. And then Ray, same questions to you. All right, sure. Um, I started drawing ever since I was little, like four years old or something. Um, even though I was born in this country, I didn't speak any English. So drawing like certain stuff just helped me, you know, uh, I guess deal with that language barrier sometimes. Um, but, uh, ever since a young age, I, I kind of fell into like cartoons and Disney. Um, the first Disney movie I saw was, uh, my dad brought over like a VHS of Bambi and that 
killed me. <laughs> like Bobby's mom. all the tears and yeah, it was. But then finding out that you know this movie is like hand drawn animation and all that just just kind of fueled my interest in art and drawing. And any chance I could, I would take art classes or I um just you know try to fuel my my interest in it. And um you know once Aladdin came out. That was it. I was like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta find a career in art and, and do something with that. Um, then of course, with everybody, I think a lot of people, uh, with the release of the X-Men, the animated series, that kind of changed my whole <laughs> view. And it it also um introduced me to comics, which I wasn't reading at the time. Actually, I was probably like reading Calvin and Hobbes and stuff. Um, but I had no idea that, you know the X-Men was a monthly thing. I thought it was just a cartoon on TV. And um, like, again, with my mom, she would like drag us shopping and whatever. Um, and I think I was like at a CVS and I, you know, I always go to the magazines cause I would look at like video game magazines and stuff. And then I saw, Oh, they actually have X-Men comics. And the first issue I pick up was uh, uncanny X-Men number 324. Okay. Which, um, that's a that's like Gene Nation, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Wow. Wow. I have, that's. I used, I used to write impressive. the handbook. But I have like this computer brain that just randomly pulls up comic books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was the first issue I picked up. Um, the cover was drawn by Carlos Pacheco, who sadly he just passed away from ALS. Um, and the interior was done by Roger Cruz, which was a big fan of when he uh, started doing X Men. Um, the I guess it's from the age of apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. Era. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my introduction to comics. And then um, through the years, it just kind of uh, expanded going to like, you know, image or, you know, when Watchmen came out, then I started reading that or um, even like lock and key was another big series or why the last man. Um, there's just so it's, it's a wide range of variety out there, like all these different stories. It's not just superhero stories out there. So um, I love the medium and just reading different stories. And you got your bachelor's in art, correct? Yeah. So I, I went to Towson University, uh, school in it's like 20 minutes north of Baltimore in Maryland. And I actually studied graphic design. Um, and back then, this was eons ago. <laughs> It was more focused in print. Uh, obviously, digital was still kind of a brand new thing. Um, and interestingly enough, um, I think through college, we were learning um, this publishing desktop program called Quark, which dealt with like uh, it, page layouts and all that stuff. But then with the introduction of InDesign, that changed the game where you can directly copy an image from Illustrator or um, Photoshop and just paste it into InDesign was like a game changer. Because Quark, you had to like uh, save every image as an EPS and import it. And it was so glitchy. But um, yeah, that was a <laughs> little thing in time. But um, yeah, so uh, I yeah, studied graphic design. Fantastic. It's I don't know if people often think about what it takes to get a degree in art. That is no small accomplishment, my friend. Uh, for both of you, I, I both I know you both have your degrees. Uh, Ray, same questions. Tell me a little bit about your journey as a nerd into a uh, art professional. A lot of the stuff reflects his, so which is why we get along, I suppose. 
but I didn't speak English until I was four. Like I was just tossed into school. Like I was just like, pick it up as you go. There was no ESL. It was all I had on my, my pockets was like Sesame street. And I would draw to communicate. And my grandma, she, she had drawings of like apples and toilets. I would bring home. <laughs> you, say, and, uh, you say apples she, in toilets? Apples and toilets. Oh, I'm like, what a strange. <laughs> so, someone's that's all you need. A, like as a kid, either you had to eat or you had to of, go. Like there was no. <laughs> a whole wall of apples and toilets. <laughs> no one... <laughs> and my grandma was a seamstress. So there were patterns everywhere all the time. There was all these drawings of these women and these, these outfits. And I would sit there and try to recreate the images on the pattern folders. It was like little paper envelopes. And she was my caregiver. So it was like, it was just her and I, and I would just sit there and draw. I was just a quiet kid. It was like, just give him some crayons. It'll be fine. And, and that's what I did. And then you start getting attention for that in school. Like the elementary school teachers were like putting me on projects and making me do more work. And they would really encourage it. And it just kind of stuck. It just became what I, what I did. And from there, I got into... I didn't go to a specialized high school, but I did go to School of Visual Arts here in Manhattan. And that introduced me to so much more. Like there's the egg tempera and the oils and the acrylics. And the, there's just so many mediums and there's so much to do. And there's, you can never learn enough. Like there's always something for you to pick up. There's always a new technique. There's always a new, people come up with things all the time. And art is so inclusive of variety and, and personalities that it just, it's just, it's hard not to be attracted to it for me. Uh, and the comics was that was elementary school that was like me reading that's what would hold my attention was the books and it was random stuff but from the what do you call that the the smoke shops like just the little bodegas and whatever they had on the rack with like spin was never any, yeah 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 it was never really consistent but there were things that stood out like it was you know welcome to the x-men rogue hope you survive the experience is that and then there's the yeah <laughs> there was the like some random hawk woman and wonder woman things it was just like whatever was there and then there was a friend in elementary who started collecting the marvel universe books and then i just that's all i wanted to know like how tall they were what were their eye color what were like all their history like it was i was really drawn to that too so it was just that that was how i get i got drug in and like the comic stuck like ever since that 181 <laughs> i was like that's that's me. It was the whole thing with Rogue and, and how she had to wasn't even accepted by her peers. And it was just like, oh, my God, like her, please don't be so mean. It was that kind of huh? just you put you get pulled into the drama. It's a novella, right? I mean, Rogue came into the X-Men having like basically destroyed Ms. Marvel and was not well respected or responsible with her powers. It took her some time to earn her trust. Uh, 181 was uh, was uh, the dragons. Uh, uh, Lockheed and the big green dragon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in Japan, if I'm remembering right, that's what I haven't read that one in a long time. The good stuff. Um, I just read it recently. Wow. Uh, I'm doing a complete reread of the X Men from 1963, and right now I'm at 1986, and I'm splitting into all of the separate titles as well. So New Mutants and X Factor and everything else, and it's so slow but it's so good. I, uh, my podcast is going to take a while to catch up, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a quick question, if you don't mind. Um, 
So, uh, Eric, you were talking about graphic design. And one of the things, like, I listen to a lot of podcasts by a lot of comics creators. And I've heard Jonathan Hickman and Kieran Gillen talk a lot about the importance of graphic design in the comics they make. And then when you read Hickman's stuff, I mean, there's so much graphic design in the current X-Men stuff. And yeah. I was looking at, you know, uh, Kieran Gillen's die and like, it's all like, so, so I mean, that feels new to me because like, obviously I, I'm older than probably everybody on the podcast here, but I, um, you know, I like just the, the concept of putting in graphic design into comics is so fascinating to me. Do you guys have any insights like artistically on how, like what's, is there a magic sauce to that? Or is it like just anything will look good? Honestly, I didn't see it until Hickman also. Like, cause there wasn't any, yes, there was art. There was illustration, which is what, what I majored in. And illustration is obviously all over it. But graphic design, I didn't see much of it until Hickman, until I started reading those books. And they had all the, the grids and the, what do they call that? The, the layout, the layouts and the, and the logos. Um, I, I think graphic design is, part of uh, designing any type of uh especially in print you know like all, all the comic books i i noticed the logos the x-men logos when i was reading it, it had a 3d uh type of look to the x-men logo um and then in later years he took away the 3d and it was just a flat just x-men thing but you know some design elements in that or like the how they would incorporate the word bubbles and how they started changing like I noticed like around the uh, late 90s to the early 2000s, it was very like CGI, like little, uh, especially when it said like, oh, look at this other, uh, it would reference something to another comic and it would say, look at issue number, whatever, it had like a little X-Men logo or folder or thing, something like that. But uh, yeah, was, there's just like little elements like that. Someone had to, you know, lay this book out and um organize it in a way that's like visually uh fits with the um the text along with the art without like impacting the art or taking away from the art i mean sometimes there was just a lot of word bubbles and you're like ah, i don't know or depending on the artist kind of hard to follow um so those are like the things i i would think about and i was like oh actually that was like really a cool like creative way to organize the the page or whatever so um, just little things like that, you know. Yeah, I, I find I'm constantly impressed by, for example, when I'm reading some of the, the Hickman era X-Men, like yeah. their info pages yeah. are like not just, you know, blobs of text with a little bit of thing. Like it's really well thought out about how your it's eye is drawn around the page and how text yeah. is split up and how it's presented. And like it's it's breathtakingly like engaging. Um, so somebody with a lot of skill did that. I love um, when course. people I love when people lean into their strengths and what makes them passionate. Hickman, if you read his Fantastic Four or his Avengers, there's a there's a lot of that stuff too. He yeah. he loves to make a language and make you translate the pages. He loves to uh, uh, give you deep text boxes. In in the Fantastic Four, there was like multiple cities. In the Avengers, there was all those like uh, gene bombs that dropped around the Earth, and you had to keep track of where they were and what they were doing. Uh, Krakoa, there's all those levels. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Eric and Ray, I want to hear a little bit about the origin of Rage Gear Studios itself. And then uh, I like to, I make you think because I asked more than one question at the same time. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, what's the style of art that you adore working in and one that you despise? Ooh, okay. 
So Ray and I met actually on DeviantArt. And the year was like 2004. Um, and I think I was posting like a bunch of gay inspired art. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can send each other messages. Um, it was kind of like the early start of social media kind of. But for art, um, you would post a drawing and you would get comments and stuff. Um, and through there, we kind of like uh, started communicating, um, you know, and we got along really well. We like listened to the same type of music. You know, we just started chatting and we exchanged AIM, you know, back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it was AIM for a minute, but then Gmail happened or G Gchat. Yeah, <laughs> it was Gchat mostly. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I had come up to visit uh, New York a couple times. Um, I was living in Maryland at the time. And, um, you know, it was always my dream to come up here to the big city and stuff. So um, I think one of the first times I met him in person, it was, uh, I believe this was like 2009, New York Comic Con. And that was a big deal because, you know, you're going to this convention that's like the second largest in the nation. I was so overwhelmed by Artist Alley, just seeing all these different artists set up, you know, selling their artworks. But at the same time, you saw like professional Marvel artists thrown in there, you know, just with like everybody, like a free for all type thing. And um, it was such a great experience. And Ray was tabling there. And my first time at a convention. So, yeah, this was. And then through the years, uh, I eventually moved up here and um you know Ray has always been part of that journey and um yeah and then from there uh you know we we were doing conventions before but not as Rage Gear Studios yet um an opportunity arose where Ray told me oh there's gonna be this uh GameRex like an LGBT video game convention out in San Francisco um unfortunately like I got the last table and um I don't know I was like, well, what if we just became a studio and we're like a group or something, you know, like we already work together anyway. Um, so then it was like trying to fill that out and like come up with a name and stuff. And um, and then from then on, we kind of just, you know, we're kind of both like, on the same wavelength. In it terms worked. Of, so we yeah. stuck to it. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we've been, we've been to a couple of different cons, like out in Puerto Rico Comic Con we did. Um you know, we we used to so go to fun. Baltimore, North Carolina Comic Con, some some places that you never think like, you know, uh, I know I'm because of our type of art, like it might not be well received or whatever. But, you know, at North Carolina, it was like a, a happy uh, reception because even like straight guys would come up with like, oh, my God, your art is amazing. It's not my thing. But, you know, they can commend that it was like, uh, you know, well done and stuff. So. Um, that's always great comments to hear, but the best is, you know, just uh, hearing like fellow LGBT community um, come up to us and say, oh, my God, I never would imagine you find this piece of art, you know, that's like, you know, something I like or whatever. And that's always great to hear. Be the change you want to see, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the origin of the name of your studio? And then uh, that, <laughs> that, that second question, what what what's a type of art you love and something you despise? So it was just and it was just random because we wanted this table, but we both wanted to go. But like it was just one space, and I just took our initials and and tried and moved them around, see what I can make with it, and it just rage gear just happened. And 
I think I told you. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Well, no, but he, but not, he didn't know so for a while. For two months, like, oh, yeah, I had no name. idea how he came up with his name. I was just so happy that we found something. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, let, <laughs> let's use that. And um, it wasn't until like a couple months later that I was like, somebody asked us and you were telling them how you came up with it. I was like, wait, that's how you came up with the name? So it was like pretty, pretty neat. <laughs> I think it happened at a club, at a, at a gay club. And I wrote it on the on the steamy mirrored wall. <laughs> They're like, oh, <laughs> see. <laughs> also, my memory's not that great, so I got the memory of a goldfish. Um, what was the other question? Uh, so the the combination of the first letters of your name is what you guys told me earlier, right? So yes, our initials R A G E and then G E A R, which is adorable. I love that. <laughs> I this is an ob uh, this is either an obvious question or I will regret asking. And luckily, I have full editorial control. Are you two a romantic couple as well as in business together, or just in business together? Yeah. Okay, I was, I was just best friends. Either, <laughs> I was either going to be like a duh or like uh uh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, so the other question, uh, so it, uh, answering personally, what's uh, what's the style of art you adore and one you hate working in? Okay, uh, for me, I found anime and uh, of course Disney kind of influenced me a lot, um, <laughs> which I feel like Ray's telling me like, oh, that's too elongated because uh, anime is kind of you know Sailor Moon got these long legs and stuff, um, so I, I kind of that's my kind of style um, and. Um, I guess a style that I'm not too keen on, uh, I don't know, I guess, so I don't know, it, I'm pretty open with other things, but, um, I guess to define my style, it's very influenced by anime and Disney. Except I, really sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I get art school opens your eyes to a lot of things. So I definitely don't have a style that i don't like there's because i've tried them all there's things i have less patience for there's things you got to wait for it to dry like there's a process sure. and those things can be tedious I, i've i've become very digital heavy where i've gotten so used to the layering and doing whatever you want being able to adjust things and like always go back and edit and but then i ground myself by doing the actual traditional stuff where you can't go back and you can't layer and you can't create these effects uh, Derek, let me ask you a little bit of the same question. Your journey as a sci-fi writer, uh, well, as a nerd into sci-fi writer, uh, and then is there style that you love working in and one that you hate, perhaps? Uh, so uh, the, I think I was, I grew up in a rural town. My dad was a construction worker and stuff like that. I mean, it, my life was not very exciting. I felt very much like Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. Like I'd love to go find something more exciting than just being where I am now. Um, and so science fiction was always that, like the cartoons, my earliest cartoon, like I was around for Saturday morning cartoons. So there was like Tarzan and the super friends and Batman and Superman and everything. And uh, Spider-Man is amazing friends. So like all of that was what was really going on in my head. And if there was a telepath around, they'd see this little kid walking around just completely head in space. <laughs> Um, and, and so I wanted to, I was exposed to comic books when I was 10, when my mom got me four comic books and I wanted to be a comic book writer. And I knew already that I wanted to be like, you know, this flavor of writer, like a novel writer. But, um, when I 
fell in love with comics. I was like, oh, I would like to be a comic writer. But then like I had, you know, being in rural Canada, I had no access. Like there was no comic cons. There was like, I had no idea how to even start. Whereas I knew I could at least type out a story and try and send that off to editors. So the the getting into comics is probably the last thing I'll do with my career, you know, creative career right now. Um, when when I was 11, it was the first thing, but you know, circumstances didn't drive in that direction. Um, and and a style I don't like, it's probably an unpopular opinion, but I mean, my first artistic exposure to comics was the Burn Austin run from X-Men, Burn on Fantastic Four, Michael Golden on Micronauts, P.K. Russell on Doctor Strange. I mean, these are superstars. And then at one point I picked up something from Lee Kirby when I was picking up some X-Men reprints. And I was like, what on earth is this? It's so ugly. Oh my God. And I mean, I feel like Kirby is sort of like an acquired taste. Um, and I know that's an unpopular opinion because he's like revered everywhere. But I, And I appreciate him now for the energy, for the dynamism, for everything else. But like on pure, I love a great draftsman. Uh, you know, when I was looking at the Rage Gear stuff, I was just on their website and I'm like, you know, yeah, the Nightwing, I'm not looking at him that way, but wow, they drew a great Nightwing, you know, like the draftsmanship is amazing. Uh, I oh, really I'm, appreciate I'm looking at him that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I just appreciate like really realistic, finely drafted stuff like that. And so when I went to Kirby, it was like, I, I was just, same with Ditko. Ditko's got a very off-putting art that works really well for Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, but like, on other stuff like you see him draw iron man and it's like weird you know yeah yeah so so yeah i guess i'm gonna i'm gonna kick the uh founding fathers <laughs> uh, <laughs> what what genres have you worked in besides sci-fi i know most people know you from your quantum magician series i know you've also done some video games so i'm working on a video game right now but i'm under a, a non-disclosure agreement so all i can say is it's a triple a game okay. uh, i'm not allowed to give any other details um, and, uh, I've done some fantasy writing. I've done some second world, like where you make up the whole world and, you know, it's whatever you want. I've also done historical fantasy. I've done some horror. Um, and I've even tried my hand at lit because as a baby writer trying to get published, there's a certain amount of floundering that goes on. Um, and I mean, almost any creative will experience that floundering when it's like you're within that first million words you know, or your first 10,000 drawings where, you know, it's still not coming out great. And so you're trying everything to tr try and be better. And so, yeah, I did some lit stuff as well that got published. Uh, so shifting back to Rage Gear, uh, the two of you have different but complementary art styles. And one of the things that really stood out to me, and again, it's reconfirmed when I go to your website, you can draw cutesy, uh, you can draw like gorgeous human pinup kind of uh, like you guys do both incredible full figure full color I can't wait to talk to you about art for my wall by the way which you could see behind me <laughs> uh, and then you can do like really sexy and then shift into kind of manga or more Disney uh, and it, you, you both have spaces where you both draw I know and then you've got your individual stuff but I, it's it's super impressive uh, what tends to inspire you as artists uh, what what makes you draw what you draw and uh, choose how you draw it it's it's absorbing information. It's growing up, like Derek mentioned earlier, with the Saturday morning cartoons and every mm -hmm. all the different styles you were exposed to. And there's a lot like nostalgia has pull, right? So it's like you got you got things that look very cutesy in a certain way, and you want to, if you want to honor that, if you want to like imitate that, then it's fun to stick to. But it's also I, I'm I like 
the variety. Like I wouldn't want to do the same thing the same way all the time. Like the, it reminds me of like, for example, Jim Lee, when he did, you know, he, he has a style that he's known for, but then he would did this thing called death blow and it was just black, white, and red. And it was very different from what you would see from him. But I like the, the range. I like being, the cute stuff is fun. Cause there's a part I have like 12 nieces and nephews. Like there's a lot of children around me. So it's like, there's, I do things that I can share with them. I do things that I don't share with them. And, you know, eventually they'll grow up and see that. <laughs> But it's, I don't know, it, it also makes you open to, to different audiences, you know, because it's not just one thing. And that's one of the draws of the table of what we do is people going in there and figuring out the mashups, for example, like they're familiar with this. It looks like something they know, but it's not, but it's something else they know, but it could be like the, yeah, yeah. Like, what is it? But it's both, <laughs> I guess everything. So it just, it's a fun game that engages people so we kept at it uh this will this will is, make... uh what's his name queer bird that is <laughs> that is q bird but for us it's queer bird but you know, we just put him in kinky boots like it's just it, you gotta make it fun. <laughs> you guys always... have a number of uh mashups on your website and and at your booth that i saw it's kind of like uh it's like you guys are the mojos of artists you're taking the x-men and just putting them into all these different genres it's wonderful <laughs> it's all about rogue <laughs> if, if i could put rogue anywhere and make it work somehow the rest that's, follow that's it. it yeah <laughs> but that, i i will attribute that to ray where he likes to do mashups and just combine different elements uh because it makes it unique you know we did a like 13 or 14 series of like different um roger rabbit and jessica rabbit uh mashups of different couples you know and just drawing it in that style um and again nostalgia like when I watched Who Friend Roger Rabbit, it was like, wow, I was like, I don't know, eight years old or something. But um, again, our influences, and especially nowadays where um, being a nerd is kind of like mainstream now, you know, we've got the MCU, we have like, you know, even cartoons are now not just for kids, you know, like Avatar, The Last Airbender, um, Steven Universe, where, you know, they have elements of LGBT um representation representation and stuff and um yeah it, it's we're bombarded with so much and with streaming services is like every two weeks is a new series and it's great and it's cool and it's just yeah i think that's what keeps us going is just seeing all these other um all these other uh creations coming about yeah and you do that and then when you mix it up it's even it's like i said it's more engaging you get people who then want to be at the table and discuss what they just noticed and talk about what they think or what their opinion or who like what combinations they would have preferred and we just did a lost boys one mm, like, yeah, so yeah. Dude, some guy was really into vampires and he's like draw me a vampire rogue and i'm sitting there like what kind of rogue would vampire would what kind of vampire would rogue be i'm like oh my god it's lost boys she told me one of those guys the one with the mesh top yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so I love the comment that nostalgia has pull. I think that's that's such a true statement, and it's such a weird thing too, because like the past is so crappy in so many ways. But uh, like yeah. that gravity of nostalgia stuff. is still it there, is, right? That, it's absolutely crappy, but when you find like the little treasures, you kind of just like yeah, yeah. But uh, it, Eric, you've you've mentioned Rogue a few times, and and so like I find it so like I'm listening to a number of podcasts now, especially LGBTQ podcasts, who talk about the X-Men in ways that I haven't thought about them before. And like, it's like, 
it's so surprising how many people gravitate towards Rogue. And I was just wondering why you were gravitating towards Rogue. Like that's that, that's that's me. <laughs> well, is so my my favorite X Men is Gambit, but my second favorite is Rogue, obviously. Okay. So, um, but you know, Rogue has such a vulnerability, and like you know, her her whole story is like she can't touch anybody, she can't be mm -hmm. with anybody. Um, that and and but still, she's a powerful mutant. You know, she can take anybody's power she wants. You know, it's it is the vulnerability, but also being part of a community and still being not embraced within that community that that goes that's intersectionality is crazy so that that goes back to being latino and being gay and then there's all being rejected by the people who are supposed to be your peers because you're different from them even still and then there's the the inability to make contact because you're afraid and that's her and the more they've explored that the more that's come to light where her inability to control her powers came from fear and yes you you are there's this fear of intimacy and 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 making yourself exposing yourself to, to hurt and touch that just i don't know just definitely relates to maybe some gays more than others but i get it mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's all of the x-men but rogue is in particular uh a, a powerful one that we connect to mostly because of her portrayal in the cartoon but i think it applies to sassiness yeah because everybody likes a sassy lady but that's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do. We haven't even gotten to Rogue on my pod yet, except for discussions like this. But we're doing the sixty well, stuff. I mean, I, sign us up, <laughs> Cyclops. I, I will definitely have you back. Cyclops has to keep his eyes covered and is so afraid of hurting someone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Beast straps his wings down. Jean, uh, who we're going to talk about today, experiences the death of her best friend and then like shuts down emotionally for months afterward. Like we we have all these these ideas about how the power we can't control affects us. Uh, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit, and we're going to keep talking, all of us, of course, as we do our issue review. I want to talk about telepathy for a few minutes. The X-Men are drowning in telepaths. It's, uh, it's the favorite power set. There are so many. Uh, let's do a quick round robin. Just name as many telepaths as you can think <laughs> of. Uh, we'll take turns for just a second. So I'll go me, Derek, and then Ray, Eric. Uh, so uh, Jean Grey. Professor X. Quadron, a cannon. How do you pronounce it? Psylocke, a cannon. Psylocke. Uh, Captain Britain. Yeah, yeah. Who's that? Yeah. Uh, we have the Shadow King. Uh, does um, do Mirage or Shan Kui Man count? Both. Karma and Moonstar both count. Okay, cool. I'll take one of them. You, tell, you can have them both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emma Frost. Mm -hmm. Dang it. I was going to say Emma. Uh... <laughs> Uh, the step for <laughs> cuckoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's all kinds of villains. There's Mastermind and there's Brainchild. And I mean, we could go on and on and on, but there's there's dozens. We could probably come up with a list of about 40. Going down to super obscure characters like Tangerine or uh, or more oh, adjacent yeah. characters like uh, like Empath and Wallflower, who, you know, are more pheromones, but it's still... Or people who are just suddenly telepaths like Sinister. Like, there's all these characters <laughs> who are... Yeah. <laughs> Sinister changes his DNA all the time. We'll, yeah. We'll yeah. Uh, so telepath, I want to, I, I do uh, a sociology uh, and, and psychology as part of my ongoing career. I'm going to go total nerd here for just a minute and talk about the human brain. And this is something we could spend six years in college studying, but 
<laughs> covering the brain for just a minute. And then we're going to we're going to transcend this into a conversation about how telepathy works for a minute. The brain is made up of various lobes, right? So you've got your frontal lobe, which is where you have all of your reasoning and motor skills, your cognition, expressive language. Uh, it sends out things to control your body movement kind of automatically. And in the parietal lobe, which is in the center, you get all of your tactile processing, the, your sense of pressure and touch and temperature and pain receptors are processed there. And then you get in the back and it's the occipital lobe where you're interpreting all of the visual data. Your reading takes place there, right? Anything that you see and interpret there, your color, your language uh, as, as it uh, interprets visually there. Uh, depth perception, et cetera. Then you have your temporal lobe, which is kind of the back base uh, where we're interpreting sound and language. So all of the hearing and speech and the autonomic cues, a lot of your memory is there. And then there's a lot of various parts of the brain that are attached to these various lobes, like the hippocampus, which is where you have your memory, speech, and language. The brain stem, which is where a lot of your involuntary stuff happens, your heartbeat and your lungs and your blood pressure and your body temperature. And then your cerebellum, which is a uh, fascinating fact, by the way, about the cerebellum is 10% of your brain mass is in your cerebellum, but 50% of your brain neurons are there. And this is where we have learned movements, our balance, our posture, our motor control. All of this is happening. There's the hypothalamus, which regulates hunger and thirst and emotion and the amygdala and the thalamus. We could go on and on about all these different parts. The brain is amazing. And when we are kids, we have this kind of open plasticity of we are born with the organics, assuming there's no disruptions. Uh, and then we develop over time based on experience. So the nature versus nurture debate is you have part genetics and then part life experience, where ideally we are growing up without trauma, speaking as the uh, queer people in the room, or we have people who for, uh, for whom English was not their first language uh, growing up. We learn how to adapt to culture and society and status based on who we are. When we are adults, our brain is fully formed. Our neural pathways are connected. And then we can adapt and learn new behaviors, but our brain doesn't change. We just change around our brain at a particular point. So telepathy is fascinating when we start to apply it in this idea of the way that it works. In our issue that we're going to review today, it's a ton about Professor X and Jean Grey and the way that they use their brains. Kieran Gillen is doing something really interesting in Immortal X-Men, where he has a number of telepaths, including Sinister and Emma Frost and Professor X. And he's trying to show that their powers work differently from each other, even though they have largely the same type of power set. And the idea of emotional control, when you lose control of your emotions, your powers lash out and your ability to control your powers changes. So I want to talk about telepathy and what it can do for just a minute. So I used to work on the Marvel handbooks. And whenever we were given a character to write about, we had to come up with these long power sections. We'd review their history, and we'd have to do these detailed, like, here is what these characters are specifically capable of doing. So rather than just saying, for example, that Professor X is a telepath, what can he do? And we'll, we'll talk about this, but let me hear some of your ideas about what telepaths might be capable of. I mean, there's the obvious. There's like reading minds, sure. manipulating minds, projecting illusion, making people think things that aren't there, uh, suggestion. Like Inception? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of that. I mean, that's that's if you're being subtle. How to fly a space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. download Russian like Russian. Intel into people's brains. Let me teach you Russian. <laughs> that Yeah, that's very Matrix. Like download it now. Got it. It's in there. 
Uh, also, I think a, a big part is uh, access to the astral plane, having battles in the astral plane and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> Xavier, Xavier can literally leave his body as an astral presence and enter another realm of reality, which is like a thought space called the astral plane, where he can manipulate things around him. What you think becomes real. Xavier has his like armored form on the astral plane that he often uses, right? And the yeah. shadow plane largely, ex or the shadow plane, the shadow king largely exists on the astral plane as an astral entity that he will fight. Uh, what else? Erasing memories. Yes. Constantly. That's come up in your podcast. Mm -hmm. The ethics behind that, the, the literal erasure yeah. of people's minds. They're also, in this issue, we're going to see sections of Xavier can enter people's thoughts. He goes into someone else's mind and visualizes the interior of their mind in the way that they see it. We're going to see this with Jean Grey a little bit today. Or when Annie Richardson dies and Jean experiences her death on kind of an emotional and visceral level by living someone else's memories. The different parts of the brain that light up during all of this and the way that it affects our ability to control. We're going to see a scene today where Jean goes to the mall and she's trying to block out everyone's thoughts. But there's a certain point where everybody's thoughts are overwhelming her and she can't block it out any longer. This has nothing to do with her telekinesis, although that's certainly a huge part of her power set. Uh, there's a recent issue of X-Men under Jerry Duggan where Jean talks about her powers being a little bit like a flashlight. She can uh, focus it on kind of a wide beam where she's kind of viewing everybody's thoughts all at the same time, or a super tight focused beam where she's delving in on one person's thoughts, which is some other things telepaths can do, where they can connect other people's minds so that they communicate together, right? The X-Men are doing this all the time. They're having mental conversations through telepathic control or telepathic connection while they're fighting or doing other things. Uh, there is also the ability to track someone or communicate with people. We have examples uh, when Xavier will send a thought projection or a call for help across intergalactic space, where he'll like send a, a help beacon to someone across light years of space. We also wow. have permanent, you know, like Scott and Jean, for example, have like a permanent psychic bond where they're com communicating consistently. It's like your, it's like a find your phone app, except downloaded into their brains. <laughs> they're always in touch with each other. Uh, what were you going to say, Ray? There's chunks of Xavier's brain throughout space. <laughs> He's got that's what they've established now. There's like he can do that through space and time because they're they're like pieces of his brain throughout space and like random locations. Well, and what Sinister can do with all this is scary too, of course. Uh there's also a lot of scenes in the X-Men where they're like be in costume, but they're walking through a crowd, and Xavier or Gene will make it like nobody can see that we're there, or they think we're all wearing regular clothes. That like altering of perception is really interesting. When you have to write up like a power summary like this and you kind of figure out how the brain works, the idea of knowing which part of someone's brain to access and where the memories are kept and how motor control. If you're putting someone to sleep, where does that activate? If you're expanding someone's thoughts or ideas or changing their memories, what happens? It's a fascinating thing. Uh, Derek, as our resident kind of sci-fi guy, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this. Where, where does your brain go as we talk about this? So I am super fascinated with telepathy and I always have been because of the X-Men precisely. Um, but in my science fiction, I've never been able to make it work because um, like, we know what a memory is. It's a piece of information. Like that's that's fine. But how do I move that memory from 
you know, me across the kitchen table to somebody who's sitting there, right? Like, is that being electromagnetic spectrum or is that like, I guess it's astral plane or something, I guess, in the Marvel universe, you could argue that. But the the other thing about like, just, just thinking about today's issue, where Jean is walking through the mall, you know, you have all these people thinking and she has to consciously block it out, which means that all of those people are actually transmitting their thoughts. So everybody is, but very few people actually are receiving them, her and the professor are. So that says something about like, so so we're all transmitting all the time, apparently, from that book. Uh, although I don't expect it to be consistent because, you know, issue by issue, comic by comic, you know, different writers and different artists are going to conceptualize it in different ways. Well, um, I think I think we have to kind of take it to three spaces. If I'm if I'm doing realm, the astral realm is something completely different. The astral realm is a place you enter as a telepath, and Doctor Strange can go there, and you can pull other people there, and it's a thought projection space. But if we're looking at the day to day operations of how telepathy works, let's uh, you know, Jean's walking through the mall. There's ambient yeah. thought. Whatever thinking, uh, you know, oh, did I leave the stove on at home? Like whatever people's conscious thoughts are in that moment, that's the stuff she's blocking out. But when you enter someone's brain, there's all that memory and all that data stored way down. And that's where people are carrying their experiences, their memories, their traumas, and their perceptions of those things, because people remember things differently, right? Then you have the thing where they can go into someone's brain. And we have a ton of this across the X-Men. We're like, I don't know, Sabretooth is in a coma, and they go into his brain, and they're literally fighting Sabretooth and his memories. And there's like some brick wall in the back where he's storing something he doesn't want them to know. And they have to fight through him and like break down the wall. That's not the astral plane. That's like the inside mental reality of what Sabretooth's thought projections look like and the way it takes form. Uh, and then dream space is something completely different in the Marvel universe as well. It's it's a fascinating thing when you start to stack it up and realize how dense these power sets are. And it's not just the power sets, it's the personalities. Because, I mean, the differences between the telepaths is who they are. You know, what what is Emma willing to do that Scott isn't? I'm, I'm sorry, that Gene isn't. And, you know, how based on what their moral values are, how far are they willing to go and how far are they willing to push? Another thing we see a lot of characters do is focus their telepathic control. People like Psylocke or Kid Omega. The focused totality. Yeah, there's the focused totality of your, <laughs> your telepathic control. And then we get like a pink katana or a blade. Uh, Kid Omega had like a, a, a pink shotgun for a while where he could like fire focused like psychic blasts at people. It's, a, it's another interesting component because a lot of characters have like visual power effects. Jean Grey's is is uh is like pink energy Psylocke's is like focused sharp pink or purple energy uh it's it's an interesting thing when you start to look at the way that it's drawn and portrayed as well uh how do you guys capture this as uh if you've done this uh how do you capture this in in visual form these these subtle power sets it it depends on the character because for me jeans is not visible i mean it's drawn for our purposes for the reader but i don't think jeans is as visible as like Psylocke. Psylocke is doing something telekinetic and telepathic. So there's like there's it's a solid form. And Jean Jean does that randomly, like she just did it recently, but it's like Psylocke's gimmick. And then there's I don't know, I think it's mo mostly to inform the readers because whether it's Xavier or Emma, like they don't have a defined power signature. Uh, I I think Psylocke's the only one with the butterfly. Which is like everybody knows what the butterfly is. Yeah, yeah. Or karma. That's, karma has that like uh, that that I don't I don't even know how to describe it. Another one who has like a set 
power signature. But other than that, in terms of telepaths, I don't think it's visible for the most part. I think it's for our purpose yeah. for us, except for Psylocke. In the 60s books, Jean Grey's TK is drawn as like little dotted lines that like- Yeah, like the invisible. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, any other thoughts on telepathy? I mean, we're going to be talking about telepaths today, but I thought this was a uh, a good opportunity to talk about what this looks like in kind of a sci-fi space a little bit. Well, yeah, let's jump into today's issue then. We're going to we're going to be talking about this. Again, this book largely focuses on Gene and Xavier and the way that this all works. We're going to looking at uh, X-Men Origins Jean Grey number 1. This is from October 2008. The writer is Sean McKeever, who is coming on my podcast uh, in about a month, and I'm thrilled. Ooh, I'm a huge insane. fan of Sean. I have so many questions. Uh, then we, that and then was we like a big undertaking because Jean never got her how she got into the X Men story. Like it, it, it didn't happen until now. <laughs> well, he's then, had it. Scott had it. Ice Bobby had it. Yeah, this one fills in the blanks. I'll talk about that in just a second. The artist on this issue is uh, the pencils, inks, and colors are all done by Mike Mayhew. A lot of people know Mike from around this era of comics. He did a lot of incredible interior work, a lot of it with Sean McKeever. Uh, you, if, if you read the Mystique series, a lot of the covers from Mystique were done by Sean. I'm sorry, by Mike. Uh, he did a lot of, uh, he, he still does a lot of pinup covers, et cetera. He's an incredible artist. We'll talk about how gorgeous it is. Uh, and then we've got Nate Picos on um, letters. Uh, Nick Lowe and Will Panzo are the editors. Uh, Jean Grey uh, shows up in the X-Men uh, first issue. Uh, Derek was with me when we, and Maria Wolf, when we did the Chris Claremont story from Bizarre Adventures 27, where it shows her past with Annie Richardson. This issue fills in a lot of the blanks around her family and what's happening in her youth and how she got to the X-Men. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, issue. Uh, Eric, will you start the story for us? Tell us what happens as we begin this book. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the story, the art, uh, whatever you'd like to share is great. Okay, sure. Um, to kick it off, I'm going to start with the setting. Um, we see a shot of, I guess, the gray mini mansion. <laughs> It's like a, a winter day, snow is on the ground, um, and through the window we see a teen Jean looking pretty grumpy, just staring out the window. Um, and the last panel uh, of this page, it, it's kind of zooming in to focus Jean. Um, then we see uh, someone say, hello, Jean. And, you know, it's Professor X introducing himself. He's like... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm your parents invited me here to speak with you. So Xavier continues telling her how he knows the desperate need uh, to control that which makes them different and um, basically trying to make an introduction and, and kind of uh, uh, zero in into Gene. Um, and there's, you know, there's this gorgeous moment at the end of that page where Gene's staring out the window and he switches from speech to telepathy. Like, I'm here to help you. Yes. Like, oh, like he yeah. gets me. Nobody else understands. It's beautiful. And and the fact that he does that, it catches her attention. Um, I, I attribute this scene, it, it kind of relates to uh, the first interaction in Harry Potter when Dumbledore visits Tom Riddle um, at the orphanage. Um, it, it gave me that type of feeling. Um, and... Yeah, as, as we carry on um, onto the second page, uh, it's now changed to uh, a fireplace in the living room um, where we got uh, Jean's sister, who I had no idea she had a sister, um, her parents and Professor X just talking um, 
you know, all the hardships they've been going through recently. Um, Gina experienced a traumatic accident two years ago. And, um, you know, her father's son, Professor X, like, you know, we've, we've gone through every specialist out there. And um, you're the first person that has kind of captured her attention. And Professor X is telling um, them, you know, this is going to be a long road um, to try to, you know, not only have Jean try to control her powers, but also uh, get past this traumatic event that she experienced. Um, it's going to take some time. And, you know, they're weighing, they're taking that in. And, but her mom's like, you know, but can you do it? Can you like help her? And, you know, um, the next scene is a, is a splash, is a spread. And, you know, uh, you be before, before we move on, can I just note? Yeah. Jean Grey's dad, and I think this is cute, but uh, but tragic too. He's like, listen, Xavier, we've had our Jean see every sort of psychologist, psychiatrist, neurologist, faith healer, phony astrologist you can imagine. And you're the first one to get her attention. So these, these parents have very lovingly tried to get their daughter through this trauma and they're desperate. Although they don't know Xavier is a mutant, uh, they, yeah. they need his help. Yeah, keep going. I think it's, I think it's really lovely written. Yeah. And um, and just with the art too, it's uh, it's very uh, like photorealistic, um, very painterly quality to it. Um, very Alex Ross. It reminds me of Alex Ross a lot. Um, but the next page, we see Professor X actually entering Gene's psyche, and you know we see a scene: um, Gene on the floor, just screaming and crying for her friend Annie, who just got. Uh, uh, involved in like a car accident. Um, it seems like, you know, a car struck her. So um, Professor X is just there, you know, he says uh, she's uncontrollably just crying and, and mourning the loss of her friend. And Professor X is trying to bring it back and, and get her out of that mindset by telling her, you know, it's your friend Annie that this occurred to. It wasn't you. You know, it's not um you know because Jean's so latched onto it it's almost as if she experienced this death herself um so professor x is like extends his hand out it's like you know come with me let me show you something um to try to take her away from this just this this Moment. dead end of of a thing where she can't move past um so as she grabs his hand we move on to a, a different scene it's uh like a field with um flowers and and stuff and uh very much like when bell runs into the field and starts singing after you know she evaded gaston <laughs> it's very that <laughs> it's also very but, like uh, uh, it's very like the christmas carol uh mm-hmm. where where uh the ghosts are like walking marley or not marley uh scrooge through like memories of his life right like he's like yeah. moving her from memory to memory it's fascinating the way it that it's portrayed yeah so it's a, it's a stark difference. And, you know, we see Jean like smiling and, and just remembering, uh, oh, wait, you know, I can I can move past this or go to a different scene type of thing. Um, and she's like, I, I remember coming here before. And, you know, Xavier's like, you know, nothing can hold you back. You can, you know, visualize this and come here. Um, and the scene starts to kind of melt away and they're back um, in the in in a room an empty room where Jean and Professor X are having this telepathic conversation. Um, you know, he, he tells her, you know, I can train you to control your tele- telepathy 
and your telekinesis as well. You know, I can help you to confront your grief. Uh, I can show you the way. And, you know, she, she looks back at him and says uh, verbally, you know, I, I'd like that. You know, she's she's ready to kind of get that help she needs. And then we get the montage page. What song? What song is uh, as James James training as a telephone? What song's playing in the background? Do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know, <laughs> but we, yeah, we get uh, several scenes. You know, um, Professor Eggs and her uh, using their powers. You can see the the visual uh, energy signatures. Um, there's another scene. Um, Jean is is rising above her bedroom with like the wooden blocks spelling her name using her telekinesis. Um, then we have another shot of her visiting Annie's grave and you know I guess making her peace with that you know that loss. And then the last shot is Jean looking at herself in the mirror and just smiling. You know she's kind of becoming back to being herself. Um, and as we move on to the next page, you know she. She steps out of her bedroom and, and goes to the living room and sees Sarah there and just calls her name out. Um, and, you know, Sarah's like involved in her little uh, teen magazine she's reading. And um, she's like, oh, hey, Jeannie, you know, uh, I'm, I'm busy reading this magazine or whatever. But, you know, she she realizes like, oh, my God, she's talking to me. She's she's out of her her mind or her 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 uh, I guess where she was like stuck and she's like so elated and and goes up to her and and hugs her and you know it's telling her welcome back Jeannie you know it's so good to have you back and embraces her um and yeah we see Professor X in the background you know kind of just being present uh, as being her guide I guess at this point then, um, then we enter the mall um, on the next page. Uh, you know, see a little a little panel where uh, Professor X and Jean are standing there, and uh, she's like, you know, oh, you know, maybe we can come back tomorrow. Like maybe it's too soon. And uh, Professor X is reassuring her to be strong, Jean. You know, trust yourself. Um, then we see uh, a beautiful shot of, of an interior of a mall. Um, I don't know if people remember that now. They're all shutting down. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, you see the, the different stores and a lot of people walking around. I guess they're pressing through, uh, you know, the seating area and stuff. And, um, you know, again, Professor X is encouraging her to kind of, uh, you know, trust herself and, and walk through. And, you know, they're having a... a, a a telepathic uh, conversation, and you know, she's like, "Oh, I, I'm okay. Like, I, I'm I'm doing this. I'm I'm fine. I'm okay." Uh, you know, she never thought she could be around people again. Um, she has that that thought, and she's smiling. She's happy, and um, but you know, there she is, being present and being around people again. Are you a Jean Grey fan? Um, I. I'm kind of indifferent about her. Uh, <laughs> I, I think my my uh, I guess my knowledge of Jean was attributed to the animated series, but she was always like the one screaming or falling down or just I was just like, gosh, she, you're like you have such a strong power set. Like, why was she portrayed so? I don't want to say weak, but just like incapable, incapable of you yeah, know. She's, she's known for her. Style. 
she's she's known for her fainting <laughs> yeah yeah but when i was reading through the comics you know and learning about her uh being the host of the phoenix and and going through all this history of you know being part of the original five x-men she was the only female character for a while and um even i guess when i was reading it um it, it seemed like she was a uh, at the time it was like the mid 90s so she had that power pink bubble signature powers and stuff and um it was on the verge of when onslaught came about so i remember uh her like her interactions with professor x were like you know she, she, her figuring out uh you know he had feelings towards her and this this and that you know like <laughs> it was kind of creepy stuff but like you know that that made me interested in this character um yeah uh, uh, Derek or Ray, any comments on this first section of the book? It's just beautifully portrayed. It's a little girl who's doesn't understand what's happening because, I mean, they really, I think that her age matters a lot in this. And because had that happened to an adult, it would have been possibly a very different reaction. You don't get lost in that moment, like, and, and feel like that's you. And it was just done so, so honest. Like this happened to a real little girl. Like this, it just felt so sincere. Yeah. Imagine being 10 to make it very real. And exactly. your, best, your best friend is killed in a car accident in front of you. You see her die. That would traumatize you, you for your whole life. But imagine feeling her die, experiencing her die. I mean, good Lord, what a what a crazy, uh, what a crazy story. The visual portrayal of the interior of her mind, like the uh, the way they're moving through the memories, I think is so beautifully drawn. Uh, Derek, any comments on this section? Oh, I agree on on everything that's been said. The like, I can be driven away from even an X Men comic by bad art, and so this this one is drawing me in. The story could be terrible, and I'd still come for it. Um, the the art choices are are pretty neat. Like all of the, I noticed that all of the inside Jean's mind ones have no panel borders. Yeah, and uh, all of the ones in the real life have panel borders, and. You know, normally panel borders and your lettering tell your eye how to move across the page. But on the ones in Jean's mind, I was looking at it and it's like your eye, the reader's eye is supposed to follow where Jean is looking. And so I looked all through the comic and every time Jean was looking somewhere, then it showed me where I'm supposed to go on the page. And it's a really natural thing too to to like follow somebody's the, the way they're looking. Um, I am a Jean fan. Uh, like mostly i'm a phoenix fan but like i you know because that was my my experience so yeah i'm a dark phoenix fan yeah <laughs> yeah exactly uh derek was uh since you're the only straight person in the room was Pumpka jensen in the x-men movies part of your sexual awakening <laughs> uh she was in star trek i didn't watch the movies actually because i am such an x-men fan that i was worried that the x-men movies would just do such a terrible butchery of the comic that I would be sad. And so I actually don't think I watched any of the movies or maybe I watched half of one. I have a, I have a couple of straight friends who will comment on her and how that she was part of their sexual awakening. <laughs> she, I first saw her in a Star Trek episode where she and Picard got together. It was really good. Oh my God, <laughs> Picard's Professor X. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Before, I mean, I saw her in The Illusionist and that was creepy. And then I saw her as a teacher's head with legs in another like horror movie. Like she's just a wandering head with little legs. Femke's yeah, been around. Uh, Derek, take us through the next section of the book. Jean's in the mall. She's doing a good job until some guy bumps her. What happens? Yeah. So Jean at this moment is 
12. And I, so I think we can argue like, is she a teenager? Is she not a teenager? And I, I, I tended to read this and interpret it as she's still a child and she's still very much drawn as a child, I think too. Um, and you know, a child trying to hold the focus and be focused while they're doing something is probably really tough. She gets bumped. It knocks her off her focus. And then all of the thoughts of the people wash in and the lettering work here is really cool. And it, it looks to me like, you know, 20 radio stations are all turned on tuned at the same time and it's all loud and obviously it hurts. And then she lashes out uh, as, as one would do if they're in pain. And uh, you know, then this telekinetic moment happens with uh, in the middle of the mall and, you know, I'm glad I'm not Professor X having to clean up this mess and convince people that stuff didn't happen. Um, it's it's a really great splash page. Um, but the the next scene is, you know, Professor X talking with the parents and it's a rough regrouping. And then he brings the option of walling off her telepathic abilities until she's ready. And and it I think it's cool that he has been trying to be less invasive up until now. It's almost like he's approaching this as a medical doctor where it's like, do no harm, do the least amount of intervention you can see if that, you know, cures things and go on. Um, when Gene Keen's dad is like, if you can shut them off, shut them off, turn it off. I don't yeah. want them anymore. And he has to, he has to reinforce her abilities aren't an affliction. They're a gift, which mm. is, uh, which is something uh, just incredible. That, that, formation of shutting down our queer identity or our our ethnicity or the things that make us special instead of learning to embrace it it's not an affliction it's a gift right yeah bobby couldn't you just not be an immune <laughs> right <laughs> yeah um page 13 we go back into gene's mind and again there's no panel borders our eyes are drawn across the page by the eyes of gene it, the, the art expressions is amazing. And now Annie, her best friend, is being portrayed as a cadaver, which is pretty horrific. Um, but And then you get this double page splash next. And Annie doesn't want to leave this mental scene of uh, Annie's death. Or sorry, Annie doesn't want Jean to leave. And, and, but Jean is going through some sort of a recovery here. And she's like, okay, I know you're not Annie. You're you know, you as Annie, this is my own fear of me leaving this place and letting go of herd and all of that. And um, it, it's, I felt it was really cool. And to avoid mansplaining to Chad, I'm just going to say that as someone who isn't a mental health professional who doesn't play one on TV, this trauma response of holding on to something unhealthy felt really authentic to me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you can opine, Chad, as a professional. No, uh, I mean, yeah, I could talk on that for a whole hour. A lot of my work with people in therapy is helping them reinterpret their trauma, find peace with it, and let go of uh, the pain of it. And that's literally what Professor X is doing with Jean in a in a visually portrayed format in her mind of her letting go of this trauma. It's yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's beautifully portrayed. And and the last image on that scene, which carries us over into the next page, is, you know, Jean is flying like Supergirl, like the colors work, the the pose works. It's literally a hopeful Supergirl optimistic image. Um, and it's leaving the mental space of her trauma to a bright sky in sight of a, of a wall that's being built, which is like a blue sky wall. But one of the things I, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into this, but the wall is, you know, eventually going to stop being built. And when it's done, the cosmos and all the stars are going to be cut off. Yeah. Um, and that's a very Phoenix sort of, you know, you can read Phoenix into that as well. 
because by this point in the continuity, they've explained that the Phoenix discovered Jean at the moment of Annie's death because of the way Gene Jean was holding on to Annie and trying to stop the death from happening. So yeah, yeah. um yeah there's anyway so I I may be reading too much into that but I like the the sort of cosmos that's you know at the upper end there. Well and Jean's saying I outgrew my fear and that's when she takes off like Supergirl and that image that full page image of like Professor X her flying within her brain and and it's like all within her head at the same time. Uh, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, it, we've talked about this on the pod a little bit too, but when Claremont started the Phoenix stuff, he had the idea of Jean, it, it wasn't an alien entity so much as Jean uh, latching onto her own repressed emotions and becoming a fully formed version of herself, which ties into that theme, although the, the mythos has changed a lot since then. Uh, yeah. Ray and Eric, thoughts on this section of the book? Uh, the art, the the story, what, what did you think of this section? It's just beautiful. And again, it's just like, visually pulling her out of this trauma or her coming to terms and being able to do it for herself. Charles isn't really helping her here, especially with that Annie situation. She's taken what she's learned and she's applied it. And she's like, I don't have to stay here. Like this is, I'm aware of what this place is now. I can name it so I can deal with it. And then she opts to leave and yeah, it gets blocked off from the cosmos. And I mean, even that, even the fact that that's happening, she's getting locked, She's now unable to do something she was able to do before. It's still really pretty. <laughs> but I also think visually, like even having Professor X be present, like, you know, she's she's not alone. You know, she's not the only one experiencing this type of power. Um, she can fall back uh, or ask questions or get guidance from someone who has experience. So I think that that was visually portrayed pretty well. And you mentioned Rogue earlier, like the reason she can't control her powers is because of her fear. And this is the same story with Jean here. Like I'm overcoming my fear and now I am not uh, losing control anymore. It's it's the, kind of that same type of thought uh, thought pattern. Same thing with Iceman. We did the Iceman origin story. When he loses control, everything around him freezes. And so he has to learn how to repress it, tie it up, right? It's uh, it's not until he comes out and learns how to uh, overcome his fear and, and embrace his queerness that he has like full ultimate control, which is something we see in the comics happening now. It's uh, it's fascinating. So after Gene is sort of healthier and more stable and more cured and has taken some of what she's learned and, uh, you know, moved on, the greys get the talk I put in air quotes. Um, Jean <laughs> and her gifts, um, Professor X tells them, need more support than they can give. And he's starting a school for gifted youngsters. And you know, the mom is like, we just got our little girl back and now you're saying we take her away. But he's like, well, this is this is the hand that you know we've all been dealt. Um, but what I find super interesting on the next page is as she's saying goodbye to her parents, she says, I'm not doing this to be safe. I just need something. So it's not that Professor X is choosing for her. It's not that her parents are choosing for her. She's deciding. And I think that's really cool. And I think that bit of agency is not something we've we've seen in other places. The other as, thing I would say, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, as Professor X tells them, I'm opening a school for mutants. There's this cool image of the television in the background showing uh, Angel flying across. Like the news has picked up an image of Angel, which is a cool dig too avenging angel at that point yes yeah yeah and so uh yeah she she gets to the school and um this i guess is where we connect to x-men number one um although um she looks a little older now the way she's drawn and so i don't know how much time has passed but uh yeah 
and she arrives on Gray Malkin Lane. And there's something I, a little bit predatory about Xavier in this scene as well, where he comes in and he helps. He's very much portrayed as a hero in this, but it's mm-hmm. not written out in this book. We we know from continuity that he has now blocked Jean's telepathy, but he also erased her parents' memories of her being a mutant. So he's like, okay, I, I helped your kid. Now I'm taking her away. Bye. And by the way, I'm secretly in love with her, but I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all about timing because like back when this originally when he was having those feelings uh, in print was Gene 15 like you couldn't tell in the comics the way they were all drawn everybody looked 20 something yeah in X-Men 1 she's like 16 17 years old yeah we like we know that as a reader but if you see it visually you don't get that yeah sure sure as opposed to the Gene you see here and she is obviously you know, 10, 12, 11, like you can, you can see like this artist really captured her age perfectly. Yeah. And then uh, Derek, you, you posited that some time has passed and you're absolutely correct. Jean worked with Xavier off and on through her adolescence. Uh, and then we're, we're having a time jump here to when she is older and now the X-Men are training together. So she's, you know, in X-Men number one, all the boys are there and he's like, oh, well, let's welcome a new student. Marvel girls here. And so th- this is kind of where we're picking up with it now. And that's so that's the first introdu- introduction to Marvel Girl in this series. In this particular book, it's her in her yellow and blue outfit with a missile coming straight for her head. <laughs> and, and it's like, Marvel Girl, look out. And she's it's which and it's Cyclops, because the next scene you get is a whole spread of them training in the danger room. You see that for the first time in, in this book. And she does can't tell if she like stops the missile or dodges the missile either way she's safe and onto the next missile because they're all just being bombarded with missiles you got angels swerving around making the missiles hit the walls Iceman freezing them visa's just catching them with his feet <laughs> and they're all just doing the thing in the danger room scott's not done anything yet that we've seen but gene is still the one kind of being tried here and there's more missiles coming and there's another one her way and scott's about to intercede and help her out and Xavier's like no 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 this is hers this is hers back up she can handle it and she feels she can't so that's exactly what happens like it just she barely gets it to avoid her just grazes her head but then Iceman's right behind her and it just blows up in his face but he puts up a wall quick enough to protect himself so it doesn't take a direct blast but uh now they're all standing around just kind of staring (laughs) and she's like I'm sorry and now she's like gone to the principal's office because she's in trouble for for not doing her homework and she's like hey what's up and she's like i don't know i don't know what happened and he's like well something's wrong she's like i know but like she's she's very grateful for the situation she's grateful for the training she likes the people it's a great environment thank you for the opportunity rupaul but it's just it feels (laughs) it feels empty (laughs) and like there's a there's an empty space like she just doesn't and he's like, well, that's good. That's great. Keep going. You're a teenager. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, it's not, what kind of, how does that answer this question? Like, she doesn't know what's wrong. And ultimately, he can't answer that question for her. And, and to, to read her little speech bubble here, I think it's really uh, it key to her character at this time. She says, I'm so grateful for all you've done. I'm grateful for this school and my teammates, for friends. I've learned so much. And I really feel that I've grown as a person. But Professor, there's something missing. Something that I don't know. I don't know what it is. But there's this empty place, you know? Which I think is yeah, indicative. Good. I don't know if that, that's alluding to her being blocked off from her, from her abilities. or I, I took it as that. And 
he's like, that's great. That's great. You're doing good. <laughs> you just placating her so she can move on past the empty space. But anyway, either way, like Hank walks in. He's like, oh, some shit's going down. We got to go. Like, look at the news. And I, now they're I, all on a jet over a city. And Scott's piloting and Xavier's co-pilot. And the other guys are just playing cards in the back. And Scott looks <laughs> back and he's like, we forgot Kevin. And then it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out she's just like well i don't know how they did that but i don't know how they did it in the movie either and now she's just walking down the street in her civvies it's like looks like a catholic girl uniform like a little white top with gray skirt and she's looking at the tv and it's like xavier and team fighting magneto <laughs> that's I, I wonder i kind of wondered if that happened in the series if there were adventures where gene wasn't not that particular battle no this is added Okay, so, and then she's approached by a random stranger who's like, hey, that's some weird stuff, those mutants, huh? That's some weird shit. And she's like, yeah, I guess. And then they exchange names and start talking. And she's like, well, are you playing hooky too? Are you like not going to school? And she's like, you know, kind of. And she's, this girl is like, she's doing all the talking. Jean's just like, a, she's just nodding. <laughs> and she's like, well, I haven't seen you before. So you must be one of those private school kids. And while they're talking, there's an ambulance speeding down the street. And the guy in the back of the, the EMT in the back is telling the EMT in the front, she's like, there's a street fair, the street's blocked off. So then the driver becomes distracted and still speeding, finally turns back and sees that he's now going too fast into a crowd. And the girls are still talking and notice that the ambulance is going to go past the roadblocks and into the audience or the bystanders or the, the people at the street fair. And it's flipped up and it's skidding all the way down to the front and it's going towards all the people and they're all panicking and running away. And the stranger that Jean meets is telling her, come on, let's run away. Like nobody wants to get hit by this thing. And she's like, no, I'm not like, I'm not moving. And she just stands there and lifts. She's telekinetically lifts everybody who's in the way of this runaway ambulance above and out of danger. And she stands her ground and she's, as she's saving the people, she she's like immobile. She's like, she's doing the juggernaut role. Like she's just like, she's here and nothing's getting past her. And she sticks her heart, her arm out and stops the ambulance, like right, like inches from her toes <laughs> with like spark effects and everything. And she's like, she's done this and now she's exhausted. And now she's just like, she's taking a breath and she's, you see the scene, you see all the devastation all around her. And she's just like chilling. She's just like, I mean, the art just explains it so well. Like, you can see the fatigue. <laughs> you can see the effort. You can see all the energy she's put into this. And now the stranger who was talking to her is gagging. She's like, you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're. She's like a perfectly healthy teenager. Yeah. <laughs> and then she does that Supergirl thing you mentioned earlier. And she flies away and she's looking very self-assured. She's overcome her fear again. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, it was great. I really, looking at this and those people all need to have references, I'm, I'm sure. Like these characters, even the AMT drivers and the girl who's talking to her, they all feel like familiar. Like the artist knows these people and put them in the book. It really is very uh, pretty. To uh, to kind of close things out, Jean gets back to the school and we get nasty 60s Xavier who's like, you're in detention now. <laughs> and uh, you broke the rules. She's like, uh-huh. He's like, your teammates might have fallen without you. She's like, mm-hmm. He's like, you have you put yourself in harm's way. She's like, yep. Then he says, would you ever do it again? 
She goes, no. And he says, you're lying. That's irresponsible, you know. And she smiles. Naughty girl. And he goes, good girl. There's hope for you yet. Uh, (laughs) I love this issue. I think it's so beautifully written. It ties in pieces of Jean that we don't have. It shows her family life. Uh, I recently did a Patreon episode with Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos all about the Gray family. Uh, and Jean's Jean's parents and her sister, and it was uh, it was wonderful. I love these characters, and I love Jean Grey. Uh, I think she's beautiful. Sean McKeever, Mike Mayhew, uh, hands together, clap clap clap. A brilliant, beautiful job. Uh, this comic came out 13 years ago. A lot of times passed already, and we're seeing a super powerful Jean in the comics again. Uh, she's an incredible character. I loved uh, this issue. Uh, let me hear. Uh, let me hear thoughts on this kind of last section of the book. If uh, if there's any from uh, from Derek and Eric, I always love when I get rhyming guests. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just you know the the portrayal of the artist with the faces, the facial expressions, and everything is just so well done. You can really feel the emotion, or like actually like Gene struggling to hold this giant ambulance truck back. You know, you can really feel the pressure. Um, Oh, they're just beautifully done and beautifully written as well. Yeah, yeah. It is. And and I, so I'm I'm the father of a teenage boy, and uh, you know I told him before he became a teenager, you know, like as when you're a teenager, you're probably going to be a jerk, and he's like, no, I don't want to be a jerk. And I'm like, don't worry about it. It it happens to everybody. Like <laughs> you need to become independent, and so you're going to have to push away your parents. Um, and so I see some of that sort of conversation with Gene and Charles here, right? Like he's not doing it the way I would do it, but I can see that he's trying to do the same sort of thing at the same time as like not make much hash of, you know, these closed off abilities that he knows they can be unlocked later when she's fully mature and stuff like that and able to handle them. Sure. Um, I think, um, you know, th- this podcast has trashed Professor X a lot. Um, and other <laughs> other podcasts have too. Um, I think Professor X in this one is empathetic and he's sympathetic. And I know that there are a lot of Charles haters out there, but this issue doesn't help the Charles haters. Um, this is no deadly Genesis Professor X. This is, you know, therapy Professor X sort of thing. Like, Gene, let me help you figure this out sort of thing. I yeah, this is cool. this is Professor X saying, let me use my time, my talent, my resources to help people who need help. And then under the surface, it's the children that I hand select that are white, pretty and can do me good. <laughs> yeah. um, I they um, need child couple, soldiers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I had a couple other comments on the whole thing. Like one, as I was reading this issue, I was like, wait a second. If this is like the 80s, let's say, with the sliding time scale, how accessible was the Gray household to that wheelchair? I bet you that at some point, <laughs> Professor Gray had to have like actual things installed to make sure that Professor X could get in. Um, the other thing is, it's always cool to see Charles Xavier on his own out in the field. Like he's really a headquarters sort of character, right? And when he does go out, it's like, okay, Colossus, you protect him on this side, Wolverine, you protect him on this side. And it's like, nobody gets through. And seeing him out on his own, I'm always like, you know, a stray bullet could take this guy out or whatever. And like, it's, it's, it's neat to see that. Like, and it reminds me of X-Men 117 when he fought in, in Egypt, Farouk, um, 160 when him and Magneto were were meeting with uh, Baron Strucker and and you know old X-Men 9 and what was it 20 where met with Lucifer and stuff like that so like it's just there's something quite appealing as well about a a solo 
Professor X sort of adventure. Xavier okay. as Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's so young in this one. He looks like uh, he looks like Lex Luthor from Smallville. <laughs> so young. And uh, one last comment is the uh, Professor Gray wears a Bard College T-shirt, which happens to be where Claremont went to university. Um, oh, I knew that at one point. I had totally forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. 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 But but obviously Claremont didn't write this book, so the people who drew the book or wrote it knew that, and that's a bit of an homage to him. Well, but Claremont's the one that made James Gray's a father, a Jean Gray's father, a college professor in Annandale on Hudson, New York. That, that that's a Claremont edition. Oh, and so there's only that college. Uh, I don't know, but, but he's the one, I think he's the one that establishes Bard College and he's a professor of history and literature, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that this, when these characters were created, we're talking like 1960 something, like they had no intention of making Jean this powerful character. It was like, just she'll be the girl, she makes the dots, like the other girl in the other book. Like it wasn't, I don't think they were ever intentioned to be like, these intense characters and Claremont really managed to to make sense of their origin, be true to their creations, and but make them more. And he, Gene, is like the perfect example of that. Like taking something very basic and making it amazing. The more I read um, Silver Age comics, the more I'm persuaded that, like you know, Stanley himself was very sexist, and Kirby was partly sexist because Kirby on his own, you know, he invented Big Barda, he invented a lot of characters who are, you know, women with a lot of agency. But, you know, that sexism continued with Roy Thomas and then later on with Jim Shooter, who said, no, Phoenix can't be as powerful as Silver Surfer, right? And it's so, you know, and I compared it to, let's say, the Legion of Superheroes, which is like contemporary. And they had, you know, the girls were in charge. They would be the leaders of the Legion. They would go out on their own missions and stuff like that. Uh, you know, with, so I think, you know, it's also still the time of Mad Men in 1963, right? So, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to get away from the idea that Lee and Kirby were just, you know, their portrayal of women was sexist and they did not value them very much. And yes, there's the girl and they have nonviolent powers, just like, you know, the invisible one, the one who can disappear and the other one who can do things with her hair and the one who can shrink, like everything about it is make <laughs> the women smaller and less important. So, yeah. And and superpower of fainting. There's a... They've done. they've done like with Invisible Woman and Jean, like they're incredibly yeah. powerful. There's, yeah. a, there's an element to this story uh, that we've kind of skipped around a little bit, but the big theme here is I needed your help, Charles, to get okay, but now I'm okay on my own. I overcame my fear and now look how amazing and powerful I am is uh, is kind of the thing. Like I needed to get past my trauma and now I can go be a version of you to help other people, which is what Jean has been in the comics for many years. Uh, she's, a, she's a great character. Uh, I love putting random groups of people together and seeing what takes <laughs> out as we, uh, as we talk. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Derek and Eric and Ray, uh, all of you. Uh, uh, after we hang up, uh, Rage Gear, I'd love to hang out and talk about commissions for a few minutes. Uh, sure. And uh, and it's been such a delight to get to know you both better today. Oh, absolutely, it's Derek. It's a pleasure, man. Likewise, Derek. Derek. Yeah. Nice and to meet yeah, you. Derek's one of my most frequent returning guests. Uh, I'll, I'll have you back again and again, my friend. You're you're incredible. Uh, as we are wrapping up here, let people know where they can find you online. And recognizing we're putting this out right around Thanksgiving time, is there anything you'd like to plug? 
Uh, let's go in the order of Derek, Eric, Ray. Uh, so I'm, as long as Twitter survives, I'm easily findable at uh, Derek Kunsken, D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. Um, if Twitter doesn't survive, I have a website with that same uh, name, just my full name. Um, so Canada had its Thanksgiving, but you guys have yours th coming up soon. But I have a new collection, a story collection coming out a month after this podcast comes out. It's called um, Flight from the Ages and Other Stories. It collects like uh, five or six of my stories that are related to the, the books I write. And so I'm really pleased. I didn't expect I would ever have a collection and my publisher wanted to do one. So this is really cool. Phenomenal, man. And I know you've got a Unite chat sometimes. I know you've got a lot of great stuff going on in your personal life as well. So happy to see you, uh, to see you thriving. Thank you. Uh, Eric, you're next. Sure. Uh, you can find us on uh, social media. Just to look up the name Rage Gear Studios. Um, it's all our Twitter, you know, if it's still up to <laughs> uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, but also you can find um, our Etsy shops and our T-shirt designs up on um, RageGearStudios.com. Um, and yeah, we're also, uh, if you know, any email questions or anything like that, we, we, we're also on RageGearStudios at gmail.com. So we try to brand with just that name. <laughs> what he uh, said. It's all Gear Studios everywhere. That's well, that's where you can find us. I look at a lot of like art websites or artist websites. Your your website is so navigable. Just beautiful job with the construction and design oh, of it. Thank all. you. Thank you. That I mean, we actually this year we took time to kind of reorganize and and repurpose our website to make it as easy UX, as possible. UX. We're UX designers. <laughs> you gotta learn user yeah. interface and user experience. Yeah. So how was that experience for you? <laughs> great. You did a great job. You did a great job. Uh, and then lastly, Gray Malkin Lane, you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We have a T public shop. We have a Patreon up where we are doing focused episodes every week on various characters. Uh, right around the time this is released, uh, I'm going to have an episode with Chuck Austin coming out on the Patreon all about Squid Boy. Uh, Sammy Pear, Juggernaut's little friend. Uh, it's going to be super fun. Uh, I adore Chuck and it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, Ray. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Derek. Uh, we will see you guys all thank back you. here next time on Grey Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.